A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Before we start, a quick warning. This episode, as the title suggests, is about death. And we talk a lot about murder on this one. We don't go into too much detail, but there are a couple of moments where we include very brief descriptions of body injuries. Just so you know. Now, on with the show. John Doe was a regular guy. The kind of man who waved at his neighbors when he went out on his morning jog. Who would pet every dog in the park help old ladies cross the street, tip his barista with $5 bills. He had no known enemies, no jealous past lovers, no bones to pick, not according to any of his acquaintances at least, and no criminal record either, not even an overdue library book. Needless to say, the entire town was shocked when they heard the news that he had crossed state lines and the police were on the lookout for him. There was no clear motive, but just 24 hours after he had last been sighted, detectives searched his room and found an uncanny obsession with crime. Shelves upon shelves of tattered mystery books, their pages full of furiously scribbled notes, a bulletin board covered by a web of red string, connecting cases, suspects, dates, town names, license plates, and stills of grainy security footage. Not to mention the hard drive with hours and hours of movies, TV shows, and podcasts. Everything from Agatha Christie to my favorite murder. It was at that moment that I decided I needed to take it upon myself to answer the question at the center of this mystery. Why is John Doe so fascinated with stories about crime? What prompted him to disappear? And could I be next? Welcome to Atlas Lingue, where this season we explore the subtle, and sometimes not so subtle, ways in which we communicate the broad subjects that define our everyday lives. I'm your host, Luis Lopez, and in this episode, we whip out our magnifying glasses to investigate the language of death. So let's start with a simple question. What is it about the way that we tell these stories that drew our dear John Doe in so powerfully? Well, I think it's an attempt to try and impose some meaning, to try and impose some finality on these horrific cases. This is Russell Williams, professor of comparative literature and English at the American University of Paris. And he's going to help us solve this case. We're not just interested in the titillating detail. We're actually interested in, in closing a book 
where the murderer has been caught or the crime has been solved. And that actually makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves. You know, we like being being taken on this emotional roller coaster. We like watching horror movies because we know when we walk out of the cinema, we're going to feel slightly better about the world. We like reading texts. We like reading novels, stories that deal with things that are upsetting, that deal with that deal with death, that deal with tragedy, that deal with departures, that deal with heartbreak, that deal with ends, of, that deal with some kind of great transgression. And I think I think part of that is we can't escape the fact that you know all of us are going to die. Right? We're all going to die, and we don't like thinking about the inevitable. Okay, this is a good start. These stories can remind us of our own mortality. But honestly, I feel like that's not all that's going on. What about the perspective that these stories are actually trying to make more of a spectacle of death and suffering? Can you corroborate that? I could pick up a tabloid newspaper, and in that tabloid newspaper I could recount some really gory detail about serial killers, about murder, I remember when I was a young boy growing up in the 80s and 90s, there was particularly the 80s, there were rumours that there were such things called snuff videos, right? Which were videos of people being tortured and murdered and that, that had been kind of released onto the market. And I think, you know, if these kind of things existed, because snuff videos have never existed really, and they've always been an urban myth. But I think if you've got the kind of replication of the grisly facts of death as titillation, as mawkish entertainment, then there's something, of course, deeply immoral about that. You know, if the details of the tabloid media world is obsessed by the murders of children, for example, and they're always kind of recounted with the aim of selling newspapers, with the aim of, you know, getting um, eyeballs on websites. I see. I mean, if it bleeds, it leads, right? But something tells me there's something else going on. Something to do with how we consume stories. If we're thinking about, about literature, there's something kind of quite moral about a lot of, be it genre fiction, detective fiction, crime fiction, or even the true crime. What you often get is the construction of narratives. And I think, you know, you get backgrounds, you get developments, you get the kind of, you know, the, yes, you do get some kind of grisly, titillating details, but you often get a resolution. So you might sit down and read the true crime story about the Charles Manson case and the associated killings in California at the end of the 60s. Or you might read about Jack the Ripper. But all of these examples of true crime writing always kind of try and bring the text to some kind of, of resolution. Aha. Uh -huh. Finally, a lead. What we crave in a story like this one is a resolution. The satisfaction of closing the book after the murderer is caught, or after the case is solved. So let's go over what we know so far. First, crime stories can make us reflect on our own mortality. Second, they make death enticing. And third, they quench our thirst for well-rounded stories that close all the gaps. I wonder how many of these factors contributed to John Doe's obsession. But in any case, Professor Williams says that we've loved stories about death basically since the dawn of storytelling. 
we go back to the collection of stories that were kind of first told in around 750 AD that were told in the Arabic world and have become known as, as the 1001 Nights. And these are a collection of stories that were told as a ruse in order to suspend execution. So you've essentially got storytelling as a way of, of putting off death. Jump forward to Europe in the 14th century. In Italy, you've got Boccaccio's Decameron, the notion of stories being told and recounted in order to pass time in the context of the looming Great Plague in the 14th century. My kind of personal experience is more, you know, I'm British and there is a kind of stereotypical kind of British reserve and conservatism, which means that we don't necessarily like talking about death and putrefaction and the kind of rotting human form too much. But kind of that's what, you know, <laughs> that's where we all end up, kind of pushing up daisies at the end of the day. And I think, you know, particularly if we look back to the late 19th, early 20th century, when you've got the birth of what came to be known as detective fiction or crime fiction, effectively a kind of modern kind of writing about death. Ah, yes, I know this bit. This is the time period where we get Agatha Christie, right? My grandma used to love her books, and she was not alone. Christie remains the best-selling author of all time, and the most translated author as well, with her books available in over a hundred languages. There's a certain type of bloodless crime writing, like Agatha Christie, where it's not really about the death. It's not really about the murder. Agatha Christie constructs all of her novels and this kind of cosy kind of crime writing uh, constructs a lot of her writing around puzzles, around satire, around kind of, you know, giving a kind of picture of a certain social class at a moment in history. There's a very distinct moral universe, a very distinct conservative, radical conservative moral universe that somebody like Agatha Christie is projecting onto the world. And it's almost like the death is kind of incidental. You don't get burning blood in an Agatha Christie novel. But what you do get is the murderer being caught in the final pages. And I think it's really interesting to think about Agatha Christie or a lot of crime writing that was that came out, particularly in Europe in the first half of the 20th century, because of course you've got the shadow of world wars in the background. And the question of whether explosions in readership of the crime novel in that period was a kind of way of kind of making people feel better about their lot. You know, hey, war's going on, millions of people are being butchered, but I'm able to find a little bit of escapism through reading a story that ends kind of neatly. Okay, so these stories provide a sort of comfort. In the midst of very real human suffering, there's some satisfaction in reading about a death that does get a resolution, and maybe even justice. But then there's that entertainment factor too, isn't there? Where a part of us can't help but wonder what a murder looks like, sounds like, feels like. And there's books for that too. You're reading a novel by James Elroy, and they're written either in the first person, I'm doing this, I'm murdering these people, or in the second person, and this is probably the most horrific, you're doing this, you are committing the murder. It's often very horrific, it's often very gory, 
But I think this kind of vicarious experience, this kind of, you know, experiencing death from as close as we can without actually dying is kind of fascinating. In other words, there's something tantalizing about experiencing death as a murderer or as a victim, or both, with no harm involved at all. Calling our next expert witness. One of the things that that is worth keeping in mind here is that I think for us, you know, death is a somewhat remote phenomenon, right? You've got to go looking for genuine bona fide death in, in modern cultures. This is Michael Cholby, professor of philosophy at the University of Edinburgh, Scotland. And his work deals prominently with ethical issues concerning death and dying. For, you know, our our predecessors, let's say in the Victorian era, they lived with death in a sort of day-to-day way, right? You know, they would have kept the corpses of of the dead, you know, in their their parlors, in their living rooms for a while. Many people would have had first-hand experiences of, say, their mothers dying from, from childbirth or siblings that died in infancy. Our communication around death is much more mediated, right? Because we don't live with it in a kind of first-hand way in the way that our cultural predecessors would have. I'd never thought of it that way, but this makes so much sense. Death was simply much more common up to the early 1900s. So people were, on average, much more in contact with death and with the dead than we are today. This can also be seen in a unique phenomenon that, in modern eyes, seems a little unsettling. Death photography. Or when people used to take pictures of, and sometimes with, their dead relatives. When you first come across phenomena like death photography, it seems to, to our eyes a bit, you know, a bit ghoulish almost, right? But I think it's worth keeping in mind, again, that death was much more ubiquitous for our cultural predecessors than it is for us. You know, it's still inevitable that people die, but I think that we have created in various ways observational or perceptual barriers, right, to death and dying for many people their awareness of of death and dying, you know, only is catalyzed or activated uh, when people in their environment, you know, have to confront death. It's, It's a much more, I guess, kind of episodic feature of our existence. To further explain this, Cholby brings up one of his favorite essays on the subject, Jeffrey Gorer's The Pornography of Death. In it, the author shares a pretty fascinating idea, that the way we relate to death in our current time parallels the way in which people related to sex in the Victorian era. So when you think about, you know, the Victorian relationship towards sex, right, you, you know, you didn't talk about sex openly, right? They didn't have, if you will, kind of reputable public ways of engaging with this phenomenon. So there were these other sort of more disreputable, you know, socially marginal ways of engaging with it. So we talk probably these days, much more openly and represent much more openly sex and sexuality. Um, but death, right, we stand in a somewhat more pornographic relationship to it, right? We, we don't tend to talk about it quite as openly or frankly. At the same time, though, it's not as if our interest in death you know, goes away simply because, you know, we, we don't encounter it in our day-to-day lives. So what has happened, Gore hypothesizes, is that we now have different kinds of a cultural avenues, right, for thinking about death or encountering death 
that kind of represent it in a pornographic way, you know, in a sort of titillating way, in a sort of,、uh, you know, taboo sort of way. Okay. So, because our relationship with death isn't as direct as it used to be, we're now more attracted to it. And of course, you know, all pornography lies, as they say. And I would say that death pornography lies to us too, right? Most of us don't die, you know, as a result of grisly murders or from terrorist attacks or you know, via suicide or any of these other kinds of more、uh, sensational forms of death. And you actually have to look pretty hard in our culture, right, for representations of. Mundane, right? Ordinary dying. We're not attracted to just any death, but specifically to mysterious and unusual death. The more surprising, the better. I think Gore is essentially correct, right? That we are still maybe at the at the tail end of, of a cultural period where we're of course interested in death. We understand that it's it's our fate. We don't have a lot of kind of publicly validated ways of investigating it or engaging with it, so you know we investigate or engage with it, or many people do through sort of you know true crime podcasts and you know murder mysteries and you know, film noir going back you know kind of to the mid century, and you know this is our way I think of of trying to engage with death and and of course fiction、uh, in particular and and also deaths that are remote I, I guess they also enable us to engage with death in ways that are somewhat safe. Right, we can sort of、uh, think about death without thinking maybe too intimately or too closely about our own deaths. The subject of death has been a form of entertainment in some way for forever, for hundreds of years. This is our final expert witness today, silver screen crime connoisseur Georgia Hampton. I am a writer, an occasional media and culture critic, and I currently work exclusively within the world of true crime. Georgia also happens to be a really good friend of mine, but that should in no way interfere with the investigation. As a culture critic and a true crime writer herself, she's fascinated by how much the portrayal of death on TV has evolved in the last couple of decades. Just to look at like tent poles of this, Law and Order Special Victims Unit first aired in 1999, which is a little bit over 20 years ago. I think that show was one of the first moments where you are exposed to these, as the show would call it, especially heinous crimes. Which are usually murder, sexual in nature, lots of gendered violence there. Oh gosh, who knows how many times I've heard that iconic opening narration? Squad known as the Special Victims Unit. These are their stories. What I think is most fascinating about death in media in the last twenty years, specifically, is the way that it became. Part of prestige television, and prestige dramas, specifically and notably, HBO. You have people who might otherwise be completely turned off by depictions of death, especially violent death, that would watch any of these shows. For example. I just finished watching Game of Thrones for the first time. <laughs> you know, I'm a little late to the game, but I was very 
surprised by the level of visceral, crunchy, and gloopy death that is very visible. The camera does not pull away from that. Yeah, to be honest, I was never able to get into Game of Thrones, precisely because it was so unapologetic with its blood and gore. But John Doe's friends all said he's rather fond of it. So, Georgia, since we have you here, earlier in this investigation, we were asking why people in general consume these stories. But I understand you're just as interested in the discourse around another, slightly more specific question. Why do women like these stories? Why are they interested in this? I'm a big morning person, so when I wake up in the morning, I put on my favorite true crime podcast. And I'll walk into the kitchen, and as I'm frying up my eggs and fixing my toast, getting all that ready, all you'll hear in the background is like, her arms were ripped off, her eyeballs were ripped out of her socket, she was, like, all those horrible, horrible stuff. This is Linnea Wingerup, our assistant producer, and she loves taking her breakfast with a side of true crime. And yeah, I'll sit down, have my little cup of Earl Grey tea with oat milk, and then um, listen to some woman get absolutely murdered in a suburban town somewhere in usually California. (laughs) I know that there are definite moral implications and things like people talk about, should you listen to, should you not? Is this the victimization of people? But I don't know, it's the same way that you would watch horrible, gory movies. I will listen to true crime. I'm allowed to like violent things. It's not like this big Freudian thing. I just, sometimes I like to listen to it over breakfast. (laughs) I definitely find it interesting, the sense that people are like, this is so concerning that women like true crime. How dare they? It is an evergreen question that I think will continue to be asked, um, despite the many attempts at answering it. And I think it touches on a larger question of trying to moralize or bring in ethics into our consumption of this kind of media. Ah, yes, especially in one of the most popular subcategories of the true crime genre, serial killers. I see us sort of living in this, what I've called the golden age of the serial killer. which is, you know, endless biopics or vaguely fictionalized sort of memoiristic adaptations of stories of people like Richard Ramirez, Ted Bundy, Zodiac Killer, stuff like that. I think it's easy to forget how much these kinds of stories were literally primetime TV when they came out. I mean, Ted Bundy's trial was the first nationally televised trial in the United States. And you got hundreds of people coming to the actual courthouse and then even more people watching it as primetime TV because that's exactly what it was. But I think now we are seeing this churning out of a certain kind of story about death, namely one involving a serial killer who's usually white, overwhelmingly male, and is often targeting women. And this, Georgia, I believe, brings us to one of your specialties, Exhibit A, The Sexy Path. Basically, quite literally, The Sexy Path 
is a sexy psychopath. And it is a trope that I've noticed becoming more and more popular within the last five years or so. It's this sort of Frankensteinification of a high school heartthrob bad boy kind of persona. The person does not necessarily have to be a high school student, but these characters are often played by white male actors that previously were in programs aimed at high school age girls. So to give you an example, the show You is a perfect instance of this where you have Penn Badgley, who famously was in Gossip Girl, now playing a murderer, a manipulative killer who is targeting women and is using his sort of generic attractiveness that frankly is already baked into this role to lure women into his clutches, to kill them, to torture them, what have you. You also have Zac Efron, who obviously was in High School Musical, now playing literally Ted Bundy <laughs> in, frankly, a, not, not the best movie I've ever seen. So there's a very strong intentionality in casting these kinds of men. That is not necessarily bad, but what has been frustrating to me, and something that I don't feel like is, is really reported on enough, is that these shows and films are then treated as these moralizing cautionary tales for women. As if a woman has never been told that you shouldn't trust a man just because he's hot or just because he's nice to you. I wonder if our John Doe's research was taking him down a similar trail. That would certainly ruffle some feathers. Hmm, is that why no one's heard from him in a while? In any case, sorry to interrupt, Georgia. Please continue. And the sort of underlying part of that is an accusation of female viewership that they're watching it wrong. And it's just this completely old hat message for a completely old hat story where a white man is targeting women, largely white women, killing them in very visceral, terrible ways, often that we are watching on screen. Anyone I know who's watching it is like, this is so dumb and ridiculous and bad, and I'm watching it for fun. But it's as if there's just no possibility that especially female viewers could simply just watch this because it's ridiculous and because it's outrageous. And because, sure, for all the reasons that people say women watch these shows, for commiseration, for almost like going into a haunted house where you're like, I can go close to this scary thing that I've been taught to be scared of forever. Uh-huh. And this brings us back to the morality of these stories. Why do they have to have a lesson? Why can't they just be fun for fun's sake? You know, there's a long tradition of having shows that give you, frankly, a bad person as the protagonist and sort of test you to be like, how much are you willing to forgive him? How much are you willing to ignore? I think that's essential to watching shows like this regardless of who the viewership is. In the end, not all media has to portray, quote, good people in actions. And it's perfectly valid to explore the consequences of behaviors that we as a society condemn. And, you know, 
These stories about male killers aren't all that different from other anti-hero shows with largely male fan bases. And I'm so sick of hearing this endless question of like, why do women like this? Why do women like this? Women have always liked these kinds of things. For, you know, I guess, quote unquote, moral reasons, but also because sometimes women like gross stuff and you want to see something gross and weird. We just can't help it. As long as we're alive, we'll always be a little curious about that which we can only experience safely through stories. And yeah, every now and then we want to have fun watching something gross and weird. So what? In the end, solving the mystery and catching the murderer will always be satisfying. And when we don't get that satisfaction, we really crave it. Like, we can't just let it be that way. Our brain really needs that resolution. And when we finally get it, we move on to the next John Doe. Thank you for listening to Atlas Lingue. If you're new to the series, we invite you to listen to our previous episodes. I'm Luis Lopez, and it has been a pleasure to accompany you on this journey. Special thanks to our guests, Russell Williams, Michael Cholby, and Georgia Hampton. Atlas Lingue is an original production by Studio Ochenta. Our executive producer is Lori Martinez. Sound design and production by Chiara Santella and me, with additional production by Linnea Wingerup. Our production coordinator is Catalina Hoyos. For more information on Atlas Lingue, a Studio Ochenta original series and podcast, visit ochentastudio.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Our podcast is available on CastBox, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time... Hi, it's Luis here, and I want to tell you about a show we've been listening to called The Pulso Podcast. There are a lot of podcasts that cover Latino culture and news, but this is one of the first we've heard that really utilizes the throughline of history to provide more context and nuance to our stories. From the halls of Congress to the stages of Broadway, even the food we consider to be American, Latinos helped build this country, and we're not going anywhere. Yet most podcasts are still lacking Latino representation behind and in front of the mic. The Pulso Podcast is a Latina-hosted, Latina-produced show that explores untold stories and unheard voices shaping the experiences of nuestra gente. They've covered topics from beauty standards and gender equality to mental health and food origins. And did you know that there is an official Spanish version of the Star-Spangled Banner? Or that a team of Mexican lawyers changed the future of segregation laws in the 50s? To hear more, check out the Pulso podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.